Hi, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to Cryomalt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Our first conversation for 2019 sees us catch up with Brooklyn Brewery President Robin Ottaway and Gordon Trainer, General Manager of Craft at Lion, to discuss both companies' plans for Brooklyn Brewing here in Australia. Readers will recall that Lion secured distribution rights for Brooklyn, taking over from Coopers late last year. The news was no great surprise, as Lion's parent company, Kieran, holds a 24.5% stake in the US craft brewery, and yes, I use the term craft advisedly, because that stake still sees Brooklyn fit within the US Craft Beer Trade Association's definition of independent for the definition of craft beer. Even so, discussion has predictably occurred in the US, and we discuss that with Robin, but also the potentially tougher issue of its distribution byline in Australia, which is 100% owned by Kieran and exerts the sort of influence in the market here that AB InBev exerts in the US. We look at what that means and whether it means anything at all. We discuss whether having the beer brewed over here affects the brand at all and the underlying nature of beer that lets it be brewed close to its market. We also learn about the beers that will be brewed here and Lion's plans for the brand down under. As always, it's a great chat with two very interesting beer personages. I hope you enjoy it. And thank you for joining Radio Brews News, Robin Ottaway, President of Brooklyn Brewery, and Gordon Trainer from Lion. How are you doing? Thank you for having us. Well, I guess uh, to, to you, Robin, exciting news was uh, rumours had been coming around for a little while, but uh, it was announced um, late last year in November that Brooklyn, which had been here for some time, was now going to be distributed uh, by Lion Australia. Congratulations. Thank you. We're very excited. Brooklyn's been available for quite a while, so it's, it's no newcomer to our shores. Uh, most recently, you were distributed by uh, Coopers, which is Australia's largest family-owned independent brewery, and now you've switched to Lion, which is uh, a, a juggernaut in, in the Australian beer industry. What does that move mean uh, for, for Brooklyn Brewery? I mean, what, as soon as I saw what Lion was doing in craft and really understood what they were doing in craft here, uh, I, I really like, you know, we wanted to be a part of that. Um, and, and obviously, the various brands that they have either acquired over the years or started, it's just a big focus, uh, craft beer is for Lion, and we wanted to be a part of that. Um, and we had a great relationship with the Coopers, N- nothing but respect for those guys. Obviously, Coopers has a more focused portfolio, and, uh, and Lion has a broader craft portfolio, and so we like being part of uh, this port, you know, of this team. You know, it's also, let's, let's uh, you know, the fact that Lion, or uh, Kieran, Lion's parent company, invested in us is kind of what gave us the opportunity to come together. So, uh, I, you know, I would be remiss to not mention that. Yeah, and I mean, I was, I was going to get to that probably a little bit uh, later in the interview, but you, you've opened that, so we'll uh, just sort of uh, cross that off now. Um, there, there was a little bit of uh, finger pointing and gnashing of teeth in the US 
uh, when Kieran took a 24.5% stake um, that was small enough to stay under the Brewers Association's trade definition of uh, independence, but it still had people raising it as, you know, I, I think it was uh, a platform for eventual takeover or there were a couple of words that were bandied around. Do those sorts of definitions mean anything anymore? You know, ultimately, the consumers decide on that. I think it's a very good question how important that is. You know, um, uh, I, would, I would venture that as you become more, you know, as craft gets to be more mainstream, meaning, you know, 20% share of value in the U.S., I think, uh, you know, fewer and fewer customers is, are as focused on these things. So many of these acquisitions have happened now, and I don't think Karen is, I think Karen's seen in a pretty positive way um, and versus some of the other acquisitions that were 100% and maybe some of the acquirers won't, were seeing in a different light. And uh, so, but I, I think people have gotten used to that and, and we certainly didn't really feel any sort of backlash. Um, there were a couple of people who pointed out that we, you know, the actual stake of Karen is 24.9 and they said, well, that's just, you know, to, to stay under that 25% because that's how the BA defined it. And yes, they're right. On the other hand, if you make a definition, then that's the definition. Uh, you know, do I think, and you know, Steve Hindy, our, our founder and uh, chairman is on the board of the BA and they just defined, redefined what craft uh, meant. Um, and anytime they do that, there's controversy. You know, uh, you know, Founders is 30% owned by Mao out of Spain, but they still control the company. It hasn't affected them at all. I think it's a little bit silly that, you know, I mean, you have to put a number somewhere, and, and I guess it's arbitrary, but if you put a number there, and then we're going to stick to that number. So, you know, in some ways, would it have made people happier if it was 23 versus 24.9? Um, and, you know, as for speculation about what happened, you know, might happen down the road, well, you know, that's natural speculation. We're two years into it, and uh, you know, it's been a great relationship. It's not like there's someone from Kieran at the brewery. They're an investor. They have a seat on our board. My brother and I, are, you know, are the majority shareholders, and you know, we control the other six board seats. So, kind of pragmatically, we're still running the company. Even if we were to go to 30%, it wouldn't be any different. So, um, but I understand that definitions matter, and that consumers have opinions, and and you know, all we can do is be transparent. Um, and, you know, people make their decisions, you know. You talked about the Brewers Association changing the definition and, uh, you know, looking at notions of traditional. And we have seen, you know, a, a vast change in attitudes towards uh, beer and brewing. Um, you know, craft beer always had that sort of, you know, almost evolution from homebrew feel where everything was small and, uh, you know, very rustic. Um, and last year we saw the rise, the, the really explosive growth of brute IPAs, which, for example, used enzymes, which for a long time in Australia, and I'm not sure about the US, things like uh, pre-isomerized top extracts or enzymes or adjunct sugars were seen as the hallmark of big commercial brewers. Um, but now we're seeing craft brewers, you know, for, for want of a better term, start to embrace those things. Are, you know, is it just a constant evolution of business process, business practice, techniques, something that we just have to uh, learn to live with? I mean, I think, again, those are all kind of subjective. What's your view of enzymes? What's your view of hop extracts? You know, I think uh, th there is always going to be a segment that really focuses and cares about those issues. I think at the end of the day, for most people, they're not so obsessed about what's hop extract versus this. They, they like what they taste. And, uh, 
And I would argue that, uh, you know, the better resources you have, the better quality beer you can make. You know, there may be some notion that, oh, these big guys are going to take over these craft breweries and, uh, you know, reduce the cost and start using adjuncts and all that. And actually, it's been quite the opposite. I know plenty of people who, you know, particularly on the brewing side, who work for like ABI acquired uh, craft brands in the U.S., and they all got much better resources than they had before, much better quality, you know, beer being brewed. So um, I, I get the reaction. It's kind of a visceral reaction, but I think pragmatically it's been pretty good for a lot of those brands. And ultimately uh, the bigger guys um, have, have, you know, more uh, access to market. And I would argue that, you know, Amer- consumers in America and even here now have a far broader range of beers, uh, you know, for, for them to choose between. And uh, I kind of look at it that, what's good for the consumer is what should always matter and seems to be working. And, you know, I think it's pretty good for the consumer in, in broad terms, the consumers have a whole lot more uh, range of offerings available to them, both in Australia and America and lots of parts of the world than, than, you know, before. So. Yeah. And uh, I guess when you look at the States, um, you, you pointed to Kieran's 24 and a half percent share in, in the U S and, uh, Kieran probably occupies a different place in the US than in Australia, where as the owner of the 100% owner of Lion, they have close to 45% market share. Um, and so they have a fairly powerful controlling position in, in the market, which is something that you wouldn't have any brewers in the US that have anywhere near that sort of market share. Is there a difference... What do you mean? I mean, ABI has uh, ABI has a 45% market share. Oh, they do? I, I, okay. You know, you absolutely... Yeah, yeah, you, it's it's you know it's uh, in America you probably have kind of three spheres. You have the ABI, you have the Miller, well Molson Coors now, um, where, which in America is Miller and Coors, even though you know ABI owns Sap Miller. You know, part of their uh, arrangement was they had to you know in America both Constellation, which is uh, Corona, and Miller are not with ABI, so you kind of have like a triopoly over there. Um, so. Um, it's actually is quite, quite similar. And I think you'll find those trends are basically the same everywhere in the world, if not worse in the sense that there's one guy who's totally dominant, like mm. ABI in Brazil with a 70% plus market share. But that, that's pretty unusual. And, but, but that consolidation that we saw in the market um, you know, through the 60s and 70s is one of the things that's often pointed to as seeing the styles consolidate as well. So we were left with very little diversity in terms of beer styles and the flowering that uh, brewers like Brooklyn um, pioneered uh, was in some ways a reaction to the um, you know, sameness that had come to occupy the market. Is the consolidation that we're starting to see in the craft element of the market, the thin edge of the wedge towards moving back towards uh, sameness creeping into the craft beer world, do you think? It's interesting because one of the big trends in the U.S. is, you know, towards kind of more sessionable beers. And I guess the pendulum is always swinging back and forth. So you went from a, you know, situation was largely kind of Pilsner dominated. And then, you know, the pendulum swings to the other way. And you've got, you know, double IPAs and triple IPAs and you know, these hopped out high alcohol uh, bombs that, that really you almost can't really drink. And now we're seeing the swing back. And I don't think that has anything to do with the, you know, big guys. I think it has to do 
with consumers driving that. So if you look at a brand like 805 by Firestone Walker, it's positioned actually almost as a separate brand. I mean, you go to their website and it'll show Firestone Walker, but, but you, know, it, it's a, you know, it's a separate kind of brand. And I would say that has a positioning much closer to like a Furfies here. So more of a kind of mainstream versus a traditional craft. And that brand is like taken over for them. And you can go through countless examples of that. So what we are seeing is that the consumers are gravitating more. It's like, hey, I like all this stuff. It's interesting. I think what people want now is they want flavor, but they don't want alcohol. So, I mean, that's why you see the, the kind of the lower alcohol, higher, particularly aromatic hops. So not necessarily, you know, super bitter, but just, you know, aromatic. That seems to be what people have discovered. They like hops. Um, but they don't want hot bombs necessarily. Of course, there'll always be a segment that does, and that's fine. But kind of in the more mainstream, they want flavor. You know, they want hops, uh, and they don't want the high alcohol because you know what? <laughs> there are consequences to drinking. You know, seven, eight, nine percent beers. You know, consumers really do uh, drive these things. I remember an interview um, or a, a quote that Tim Webb, an English uh, beer writer. Um, Gave, I think he fronted up to an AB InBev uh, interview and spoke to them and, you know, basically as a, as a passionate beer writer, asked them why do they make such characterless slop? Um, and the response was because our consumers drink it. You know, well, our consumers want us to was essentially the answer. And it does seem to be the beer styles that the market and brewers chase are determined by the beers that are selling in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think, I think, you know, if you really look at alcohol category, you've got, you know, wine and spirits, which let's face it, if you go back a couple of decades, the same thing existed. Uh, you know, maybe Australia, you guys had a better wine culture. But in America, three years, or sorry, 30 years ago, there were three, you know, there was red, white, maybe rosé, you know. And, and in spirits, it was like, you know, rum and coke you know, screwdrivers, these very basic drinks. And of course, that's changed tremendously. And there's much more, you know, uh, diversity. And, and I think what that gives consumers is, you know, a whole discovery process. Okay, I'm going to, you know, explore a little bit here. And I'm going to start to learn a little bit about the different varietals. I'm going to figure out what do I like? You know, what are the flavor profiles I like? Same thing with cocktails. I think they've done a brilliant job of basically, you know, we're coming into this culture uh, the overused word in in Brooklyn and New York these days is bespoke, you know, customized. And we kind of in a customized culture these days, particularly with young people, so much, you know, more used to kind of having things the way they want it because uh, of social media, because of a number of different factors. And and, uh, and I think that's why those two categories have done well recently is they've just made themselves more interesting and consumers want variety and they want exploration and discovery. And I think that's what craft beer has kind of returned, uh, you know, brought back to the beer segment. So to me, craft beer, what's happening in craft beer kind of mimics what's happening or has happened in wine maybe a little longer ago. And again, I get that Australia might be different. Uh, although I suspect if you go back far enough, you'll, you know, it, you didn't have quite the variety here. Uh, and then of course, more recently, I think in the last 10 years, the kind of explosion of cocktail culture. So I think, you know, craft beer fits right into that movement. We provide an opportunity for consumers to explore, discover, figure out what they like, you know, then, oh, I like this kind of style. What other beers are out there in this style? And, and that brings interest to the categories. And Brooklyn's fairly unique in, uh, it, I don't know if unique is the right word, but um, Brooklyn has close to 50% of its production being exported. You, you uh, as a brewery, were very quick to uh, start to looking to overseas markets. Was that prescience on your part that you saw that the, the US market was going to become 
you know, very, very cluttered and it was a great way to uh, expand your market or was that just always? So I could give you a really grand answer. I could tell you the truth, which is kind of a funny story. And, uh, uh, and this came out um, at recently Columbia Business School, the kind of the opening first case study that their new students uh, study is about Brooklyn Brewery. And we replaced, you know, Ben and Jerry. So that was kind of a cool thing. We're proud of that. And of course, these days, you know, it's all multimedia. So they come and interview you. And I was interviewed for the, uh, you know, international part. And they asked the exact same question. And I'm sure they were disappointed in my answer because they probably wanted a more sophisticated answer. The answer is that people paid us COD. So early on, in the very early years, when we had no money at all, a guy showed up from Japan and said, I want to buy your beer. And we were kind of like, I wasn't there in that time, but, the, you know, been told the story. And it's kind of like, really? What, Japan, like we don't know anything about Japan, and and you know, and then the guy, we were like, well, if you pay for it before we ship it, we'll send it to you. And you know, these are in the very early days. A guy's giving you money up front as opposed to normally you had to sell it, give terms, and all that. So our our foray into uh, into international in the early days started with the fact that someone would pay us before we even shipped the beer. Um, and I think you know it's a good story. Obviously, that is not how we've built our export business, but I think. You know, particularly my brother and I started paying attention to that, I'd say about 10 years ago. Um, if you look at all of our backgrounds, you know, I'm, I'm a son of a foreign corps. My brother and I are sons of a, of a foreign correspondent growing up around the world. That's actually how we met Steve Hindi in the Middle East. He was the AP correspondent. My father was the Washington Post correspondent. So, you know, all of us have international backgrounds. You look at a guy like Garrett Oliver and kind of his, you know, exploration and discovery of good beer happened in England in, in the early 80s. So we all have international backgrounds, and I think this is just kind of a natural extension of, you know, of, of who we are. It's also, it's kind of natural, the whole Brooklyn story. I mean, Brooklyn is an immigrant city. It's 2.6 million people. I think there's 175 languages spoken in Brooklyn. Uh, and so it was kind of just a natural extension of, uh, of, of our brand and our interests. And, uh, and, and, you know, and we found some success. So that's really kind of how, you know, in the very early days, why we even exported it at all is because of cash flow reasons. <laughs> and then more recently, like I said, it's become a focus for us. But it's worked out fairly well for you because we have seen in the, uh, in the U.S. market some of the uh, you know, other pioneers, the Sierra Nevadas, the New Belgiums, losing sales. And as the sales have dropped, starting to look at being serious in exporting to um, you know, markets, almost to sort of uh, hedge um, what's going on in, in, in the US. So it, it, you guys must be in a fairly good position um, on the back of that. We certainly, you know, it feels like, um, you know, we couldn't have predicted the, the kind of changes that would happen in the industry, but it does feel like, you know, a nice thing. I mean, you know, okay, America is a huge market, but we're 320 out of what, six, seven billion people. So the reality is there's a lot more, there's, you know, more markets outside of the U.S. And as you say, as you know, the craft overall becomes more established, part of the fabric, just straight up math, you're going to slow down. You can't keep growing, you know, at, at 20% forever. Um, and we've reached about 20% of value in the U.S. So, you know, the U.S. is obviously still our most important market, um, but we do feel, uh, you know, blessed in some ways to, to, you know, have this overseas business. And, you know, they're, they're pretty high barrier. You know, we've worked a lot. People, you know, owners of other breweries will say, well, how do you guys do this? What's the formula? And I'm like, it's not really a man 
magic formula. It's just like selling beer anywhere. You, you know, you got to find good partners and you got to go work it. You got to go spend time in those markets and, and, you know, really show that you care and, 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 you know, visit customers and develop relationships, which is what you have to do in any market in the world. For, you know, if you're selling in any state in the U.S., it's the same thing. Um, we just got going early with it. And, and you know, I, I, I like it. I like to travel. I like to go to new places. I used to think like the reason for us, it wasn't acceptable to say we're doing something because it interests us. And I've realized it absolutely is okay to do that. So, you know, this interests us. We like going to new cultures. And, and what we really like is watching, you know, kind of, you know, if you want to call the crappier revolution in the U.S. is happening in other countries. And it's really exciting to go. I mean, you guys are well along the way. But, you know, particularly in some newer markets, other parts of Asia where it's just starting to happen. It's, it, it happened. It's, it's really exciting to be in those, you know, where it's just starting and there's that you know energy and excitement and uh, and so you know i enjoy that <laughs> and it's interesting as you do chase um foreign markets you know wine is something that is almost a postcard from where the grapes were grown um and you know you've got all these ideas of terroir beer has always been a very different product in that beer as a rule doesn't travel very well um, but the ingredients do. So, uh, you know, I, I gather that you'll be making uh, your flagship lager um, over here. So it's uh, getting to market nice and fresh. Is that right? Yeah, and that's that's part of our strategy all over the world is local brewing. And, you know, maybe in some ways it can be seen as inauthentic because it doesn't come from, you know, our brewery. On the other hand, it takes two months for beer to get here. Um, and it has to go through, you know, we're on the east coast of the U.S. And we have to go through, you know, we have to cross the equator. We have to go through the Panama Canal. It's not like there's a ship leaving directly from, you know, New York and show, showing up in Australia two weeks later. It's, you know, it, it's getting, you know, cross-docked at a bunch of different ports. And that's where it gets exposed to heat. So from a quality perspective, being able to brew locally is, is so much better. And, uh, and so we're excited. And, and that's where we're, you know, that's the direction we're heading all around the world so this is not really the exception this is this is the direction we're heading in and we think that we can you know provide consumers with better beer you know better tasting better quality it's not two months old you know all of those things are you know great um positives for for the freshness and the character of the beer but at the same time we have an emotional attachment uh with, with products um and you know brooklyn the, the the place the idea the sort of culture the you know accent all of those things that spring to mind when you look at that uh, very uh, iconic brooklyn uh, label what are consumers getting when they get a beer that's made um elsewhere other than, than than brooklyn is it just the idea of the the brand or you know is there more to it to a brand I guess I would suggest that that whole way of looking at it has changed because, you know, in the beginning, we received some flack and so did Sam Adams for contract brewing. I mean, you know, even in the U.S., you know, the majority of our beers produced, you know, upstate New York in a third party facility, although, we're, you know, it's not strictly third party. We have very, very close relations with them. Um, so the whole rise of the gypsy brewer. You know, mm. plenty celebrated without, you know, you know, plenty of, you know, McKellar, no one calls them out for this. So we're just the world's largest gypsy brewer. How about that? <laughs> I mean, you know, like at a certain point, what, you know, I think McKellar's a great band, but no one ever points that out. And frankly, people aren't really asking us. We're transparent about it. We say where the beer is brewed. We're never going to hide from that. 
And I think as long as you're transparent, consumers make their own decisions, you know, and uh, it doesn't, you know, I think that that whole issue has changed certainly in the 23 years I've been in the industry. So maybe whereas I used to have a little chip on my shoulder about that now, it's like, no, I'll, I'll, you know, talk about it openly and honestly. And I think ultimately we can provide better, you know, beers, but, you know, the DNA of those beers, the research and, you know, everything behind that, it's our beer, it's our recipe, you know? Um, and, and so it's not like, I don't really think it changes when someone else is brewing it locally. Obviously, if you're not paying attention to it and working with them and staying on top of the quality, um, or, you know, it's not really quality. I don't think anyone's questioning the quality of beer being produced at Lion. It's more the flavor match and all that, and that's what we're working hard for. Um, so, you know, I, I, I will, you know, people can make their own decisions about how they feel about that. But, but, you know, I stand behind that this is actually delivering a much better quality, you know, Brooklyn beer to consumers. And, you know, and if they don't like that it's brewed locally, that's fine, mm. you know. I guess, yeah, no, I certainly wasn't coming from a position of finger pointing and, and, and the, the, the underpinning, um, underpinning idea to that question could equally be pointed at the McKellas of the world. I guess I was coming at that philosophical um, idea of what is beer, you know, what, what, what is beer versus what is brand um, when it, it, it is transportable, it can be made uh, uniquely around the world, um, you know, to, to exactly the same specification. Does, is that what makes beer so commonplace, whereas wine has a mistake? Um, you know, is that one of the reasons why beer is um, seen as an everyday um, product as opposed to wine having a little bit more of a cachet about it as a, as a beverage itself? I mean, it's interesting question. Uh, Garrett will point out that if you look back uh, through the history of the English language that, you know, we have all these sayings, we use French words to sound more sophisticated in the royal court in England. They spoke France, French for, you know, a couple of centuries. I don't know exactly the, you know, but yep. for a long yep. time. If you look at our language, if you eat or you dine, dine is a Latin word, you know, comes from the French. Eat is more the Germanic word. So Garrett will tell you that that whole view of wine and spirits ties right into that kind of his, you know, culture. And then, you know, uh, they, they were drinking wine, you know, sophisticated people drank wine and working class people drank beer. So I think that's the origins of all that. Um, interestingly enough, a little bit different view on this. A, a, a smart person once pointed out to me, if you look at spirits, spirits are almost entirely brand driven especially if you look at something like vodka, mm. which goal is to be odorless and mm. flavorless. It's, it's almost like everyone's selling the exact same liquid. Now, people, some people will swear they can taste theirs, but the reality <laughs> yeah. is, is they're very similar. And so it's almost entirely brand-driven on the spirit side. If you look at wine, it's, it's largely varietal-driven. Yes, there are some brands that stand out, but the vast majority of consumer decisions are, I think are made based on varietals. Uh, one of the fears I have about beer is that we make ourselves too varietal driven. So people come in and just say, give me an IPA as opposed to a, hey, give me a Brooklyn IPA or give me that IPA. So I think it's important that we, we do hang on to that branding part that we don't just make ourselves, you know, I don't want to become wine again, where, you know, with a few exceptions, it's varietal driven. Um, but anyway, that's uh that's no, kind of two-part answer. That, that, yeah. that, that was and, exactly. And uh, other smart people. Uh, other, sorry, I, I don't. I want to be clear. I don't take credit for either of those viewpoints. These are, you know, other smart people have said this, and that resonated with me. So, 
And again, that was uh, exactly what I was getting at. So it wasn't about Brooklyn itself, it was the underpinning nature of beer. And I'd love to have the chance to uh, chat with uh, Garrett if he's uh, over. And that uh, leads to the next thing that I wanted to ask is, what are the plans for Brooklyn in Australia? Will we see uh, Garrett down under more often? Uh, do you have any special Australian beers that you have uh, you know, in, in the works? I mean, I think the biggest thing uh, on the beer side is, you know, Lion's got a lot of flexibility with its different breweries and different size breweries. And so we're excited to bring a broader range of our beers into the market, you know, locally produced. We will continue to bring in some of our most specialty stuff, like the 750 bottles, things that are harder, you know, barrel aged stuff, things that are harder to uh, to produce locally. And also, frankly, stand the test. You know, they hold up much better to those two month shipping times. Those things can age for a long time. Um, so I'm very excited to bring in a broader range of our portfolio. I think to me, that's the biggest thing. And then, yes, I mean, uh, you know, to ask, you ask someone, Hey, do you want to go to Australia, spend a week in Australia? No, one's like bummed out to come to Australia <laughs> for a week. So there are places that people are not as enthusiastic, uh, of visiting. I, I will leave those nameless, but, uh, everyone, will, you know, everyone's happy to come to Australia, you know? So yes, you will see us, you know, you will see those guys down here in fairness. They have been down here over over the last several years. And it's not like we're putting a big push in that regard. I think the biggest difference will be being able to produce stuff locally. When you ask about, you know, what would we do, um, you know, special beers for the market? I, I think we're more likely to do further collaborations. I mean, we did collaborations with Mountain Goat years ago, and uh, I think that would be the direction we would go in as opposed to, you know, making a specific brand for the market. I think once you start doing brands for the market, you get away from, you know, ultimately we're Brooklyn Brewery and the, we want to have the same portfolio with the beers tasting, you know, as similarly as they can all around the world. That's that's really our goal. I think that's what what excites me about bringing uh, bringing Brooklyn into into the Lion family and the, the breadth of the portfolio. So we we will obviously focus predominantly on on lager, and we're already brewing that locally. But as Robin said, we're we're going to bring um, some of the best of Brooklyn's portfolio. Probably the next cab off the rank and beer we'll brew locally will be the Defender IPA, which. Um, is you know an outstanding, outstanding beer, and then the other beer that's going gangbusters in in the U.S. at the moment, and the category is is kettle sour. So um, the Bel Air sour is um, one of Brooklyn's fastest growing beers, and we're going to look to again brew that fresh and local here out of the Little Creatures Brewery in Geelong. And of course, the voice you're hearing now is Gordon Trainer from Lion. Um, now, Gordon, your title is your head of craft essentially for Lion, aren't you? That's right, yeah. Lion has a pretty uh, great mix of uh, beers already, um, whether it's the locally produced Little Creatures, you've got the Squires, you've got Kosciuszko, you've got White Rabbit, um, Furphy, which sort of occupies somewhere between craft and mainstream that's exploded um, over the last few years. You've got the uh, Umundi, Byron Bay. You've got a new brewery coming up in uh, Townsville. You've got Panhead from New Zealand. The, the list goes on. Um, what does having a brand like Brooklyn in the portfolio add? And is there a risk that it can get lost a little bit? Yeah, good. I'm impressed with your, uh, your your range and knowledge of our range. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So we've been working and building the craft category in Australia for over 20 years. So um, over those years, we've we've built and established that, that amazing portfolio. And hopefully they uh, resonate with, continue to resonate with the Australian consumers. But Brooklyn, I think we're very excited about it. Add something new and a new dimension to the portfolio. As, as Robin's been talking about, you know, Brooklyn has helped um, 
really established and um, uh, been a, a groundbreaking brand in the in the U.S. market as it's kind of brought new styles to um, to, to that marketplace. So adding it to the to the Australian line portfolio is massively exciting. Um, the Brooklyn Lager is, you know, in some respects, craft lager is not yet a big thing in Australia. So we're really excited about bringing a world-famous um, craft lager to to this marketplace. Now, we we think lager can be can be a, a big thing in craft, and we're starting to see a few more brands come come to market. But Brooklyn's been there since 1988, and. Um, so Lara is really excited, exciting, and you know it's a it's it's an international craft brand, and um, that's not yet really a thing here. So I think we're finding that our customers um, are coming to us. We've had a number of approaches from from existing customers or new customers saying, "What do I need to do to get Brooklyn on tap?" Um, so it, it, the sum of the parts is greater with Brooklyn there, and um, it, it has something really quite distinctive and uh, unique for, for Australian consumers to explore. So we're really excited about that, and it adds, it adds to our overall range very, very nicely. I might add that portfolio is exactly why we were so interested in Lion. Uh, I think Lion of any uh, big brewery in any market in the world is is probably number one in craft. I mean, I think these guys do a really good job here. I guess the only competition might be ABI in the U.S., um, although they've been they're rather new to this, as you point out. You guys have been doing this for for two decades. So when you you know you're rattling off that portfolio, I'm thinking, man, I want to be a part of that because that's a good portfolio of beers with a whole range of offerings. And I think, as Gordon said, we just add to that range. You know, so I'm not so worried about getting lost in the portfolio. I'm, I'm happy to be a part of a portfolio like that. And and when will we start seeing the beers flowing out from uh, the the line breweries, Gordon? They already are, Matt. So um, we were busy brewing uh, uh, lager before Christmas in, um, in in the Little Creatures Brewery in Geelong, and we I was lucky enough to go over and visit Robin in, in Brooklyn um, late last year and sit around a table uh, with Garrett Oliver and, and, and sign off those beers. So um, we're already um, shipping beer out of the Little Creatures Brewery in Geelong, and that's the lager. And then later in the year, probably in the next six months, we'll – We'll work on uh, perfecting those recipes locally for uh, first Defender IPA um, and then uh, the Bel Air Sour and then potentially the Summer Ale, which is, again, a, a great success and one um, a style that's very successful in Australia today and, and uh, um, growing quite strongly over in the U.S. So uh, beers are, bro- are, are flowing right now locally and fresh and uh, we'll add to the range locally in the next Six months. So tell me about the the, the summer ale. Um, is it using Australian hops in, in in the US, or is it just in that summer ale category, but using uh, hops from elsewhere? No, it, it's not particularly focused on Australian hops. I think I, I don't off the top of my head. I don't know exactly what hops we're using in there. But what's interesting about summer ale is it's a golden ale, lightly hopped golden ale. Um, and it's and it's you know one of our most successful. It's our second um, you know second highest selling beer um, in volume, and we only sell it for four months a year. And actually, its rate of sale during those uh, months is as high as Brooklyn Lager. So um, we're, we just you know people like that style of beer, particularly when you get into the warm weather months. <laughs> it's interesting. I've had, there have been a couple of Australian breweries that have changed the name of their summer ale because. Even though you could argue that it's summer all year round to some extent in Australia, um, 
the, the name uh, leads to a sales drop-off even during uh, warm winter months. It, it, is, is that a trend that you've noticed over there or is it genuinely uh, New York winters seeing the, uh, the, the, the sales trail off? It was minus 17 when I left New York on Monday. <laughs> so we have, we have different, we really do have four um, seasons. Although, um, as you point out, that it, it does make a difference. We've had some learnings in markets like Florida that, you know, the winter beers don't go over, you know, they don't, the seasons are much briefer. Um, but, I, you, know, uh, you know, I don't think we're right away thinking about bringing in a whole portfolio of seasonal beers in America until IPA passed it, you know, five years ago, the biggest single category by scan data is seasonal, which of course comprises a bunch of different brands. And I think that also speaks to the, you know, exploration and discovery process that consumers are undergoing. So, you know, we follow up our summer with Oktoberfest and pumpkin, actually, we have two seasonals, then it goes to winter ale, and then we have a spring seasonal that always changes. Uh, and then, you know, back into summer. So for us, it's, it's all kind of one series. And without getting too technical, in America, everyone's seasonal are on one UPC code, meaning, you know, so when the, the scan data, that's why it scans as like one brand seasonal throughout the year. Mm. Um, so in America, um, we have, well, parts of America, we really do have four distinct seasons, which isn't always the case down here. And it, I guess one last question before I let you go. That's, that's an interesting question. You've got the pumpkin beers that, uh, I won't say uniquely American thing, but they do coincide with the, the holiday season, Thanksgiving, uh, uh, Halloween, which really don't take off um, as, as much down here. Do you find that there are um, region to region differences in your beers that succeed um, compared to your home market? Actually, what we what we really find is like the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, lager lager is always going to be fifty percent or more, and more. And, you know, most of our export markets, it's more like seventy to eighty percent, um, and. Uh, um, so, I, you know, there, there's some differences. Like I said, you don't have as long of a season in some places for those winter beers. Um, it's also in a lot of markets like, you know, let's go to Scandinavia where we sell a lot of beer. They don't have a seasonal thing. They have one seasonal beer and it's all about Christmas which we don't, we don't make a Christmas-specific beer. Um, but in a lot of other markets, you don't necessarily have this kind of seasonal thing that's been established like, like it has in the U.S. So, and, you know, who knows? Who knows where that goes? Um, uh, you know, something like pumpkin, we're not shipping, you know, we're not selling a whole lot of pumpkin around the world. That's really a U.S. market. So I think you see some subtle, small differences, but really on the big stuff, you know, lager is always going to be there. Our Defender IPA, we're seeing, you know, seems like the Bel Air Sour having, you know, really good success with that and a great response and you know people like the sour in japan and they like it in hong kong and they like it in australia and they like it in you know uh, europe and they like it in brazil and we don't so we don't really see big big differences certainly smaller ones that usually are more kind of temperature related terrific well robin ottaway and gordon trainer thank you very much for giving me uh, time from your very busy schedule to talk very broadly about all things uh, brooklyn and uh, beer industry and uh, you know hopefully we'll get to have a beer uh, together over before we uh, chat next Yes, thank you for having me. We're really excited to, you know, get even deeper in the Australian market. We we really like it here and, you know, tremendous uh, reception and we, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. 
You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at bruisenews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Bruise News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. And we look forward to another conversation next week. Thank you.